and welcome to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the thoughtful book club podcast featuring two friends. I'm Travis, joined as always by my co-host Amanda. Hey Amanda. Hello. We're here today on a literary mission of peace and uh, we offer you something today. (laughs) (laughs) That's because this is a book recommendation episode. These are our episodes that we do every two weeks um, to try and convince you to take a literary journey with us and join us as we delve into a book for the next two episodes or for the next two weeks. Today we'll be talking about a novel called Tracks by Luis Erdrich, a name that I'm having to remind myself how to pronounce correctly. If this is your first time listening to us, you've wound up in the perfect place because you don't have to, you don't have to have read anything or you don't have to know anything to listen to this episode. We're going to be persuading you to read something. So yay, you ended up in again, the right place. We are, as I mentioned, the lightly literary podcast. You can find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We keep social media accounts updated to let you know about books. We're going to be reading soon to remind you of when our posts go up and everything like that. So follow us there. And as always, we would request kindly, of course, that you rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you are on. We are in most of the big ones, so find us wherever, tell your friends and family, etc. Let's, um, without any further ado, get into the book for this week. The way our book choosing selection, I'm probably going to cut this, but the way our book is fumbling it horribly, um, somebody somebody turned me off. (laughs) The way our book selection process works is we choose books based on a prompt so one of us gives the other person a prompt and we do that back and forth amanda this prompt was from you and i'm gonna spend extra time explaining my pick so go ahead and set it up (laughs) uh my prompt for you uh was a war book not written from the american perspective but involving america Yes, and I went way out of bounds on this one, folks. I'm here to tell you. I'm here to admit and apologize that up front, but I'll briefly try and explain my process here. Amanda signed that prompt to me. Excellent prompt. Very thoughtful. Intri- intriguing, really. I immediately jumped to the Vietnam War because I knew there would be at least some things written from a Vietnamese point of view, North Vietnamese point of view, and that. And I found some great recommendations. But then I thought, okay... We've done, I think, maybe three or four books in Asia. I thought, okay, what, what are we missing? What perspectives have, have we not examined? And so then I went, okay, we've done nothing about Native Americans, and that could be considered a conflict, if not a you know declaration of war. There's definitely mass amounts of death, killing, and colonization in that regard. So I thought, okay, I'm going to pick something from the Native American perspective about um, Europeans coming to America and taking the land and everything, and I, that was my thinking. I then... Read up on Louise Erdrich. She seems like one of the kind of really massive literary figures writing in that tradition. And I thought I read a summary of this book that I think turned out to be wrong or maybe I misread or something misinterpreted. But I chose Tracks and it's really just not that book. It definitely deals in ideas and themes about Native Americans being colonized and, and losing things over time, but it's also a pretty personal and intimate family story, too. So I just don't want you to get the wrong idea that I chose some kind of... There's no battles in this book. There's no war scenes. There's no fighting. There's no... Yeah, so it's not a book of war and conflict in the grand sense. I think it's a battle of conflict and even, again, the conflict I wanted it to be or wanted to examine. So I'm satisfied in that regard, but I did go a bit off on this one. Amanda, did you think, ultimately, were you satisfied by the pick? <laughs> 
Um, I think that there is an argument to be made about the idea of war and how that should be defined, I suppose, uh, yes. according to your pick. <laughs> yep. No congressional declarations of war in this book. Be clear about right. that. But I think it's a conflict well worth exploring. And I was happy that it fit what I was looking for. And yeah. I think we gained the perspective that I sought. So how about that? I feel very confident Perfect. in that. Excellent. Okay. So that set up and my zany explanation aside, let's move into the actual <laughs> recommendation. We begin all recommendations with a simile, comparing the book or comparing reading this book to something. Amanda, what was reading tracks like? Um, I said reading this is like relaxing on the beach and zoning out on the waves crashing against the beach. The water and beach are apart and opposite, and then they overlap, crash into each other. It's hypnotic in a way because once you start watching, you don't realize how quickly the time has passed. Mm-hmm. And, and how does that in any way connect to this book? <laughs> Hit me. <laughs> so I was thinking of like the beach and the waves as actually the two narratives and the two narrators in this book um, and how they are two completely opposites, um, but mm -hmm. that their stories are overlapping in a, um, a lot of ways. And it's really important and it's fascinating both separately, but also when the stories do um, overlap, it's equally fascinating and it's just such a great read that you don't realize like i i zipped through this book because it was just right. so fascinating yeah and it's not too lengthy a read right early mm -hmm. low 200 page count or something and yeah. it does have a hypnotic almost dreamlike quality some to some of the passages especially yeah. so i think that's perfectly well chosen my simile is that reading this is like finding warmth next to a campfire, or it could be a fireplace fire, which I grew up, we had a fireplace in, I think, most of our homes. The thing about getting warm next to an actual roaring fire is that it really comes in fits and starts. You'll find yourself comforted, of course, but then it can become so intense and have such an intensity that you kind of pull away from it, too, for a little bit. You have a desire to almost back away that it's too much and, you know, you don't want to get burned or something. And so mm -hmm. the blaze can be a bit too much, but then you know you need it and want it. So it's, you know, ultimately a comfort, but it's an intense one. And I say all of that just because I think the passages in this book have those fluctuations or have that push-pull where... There are moments where you're just kind of enjoying the, the story, the narrative, it, it forges on, etc. But I think that some of the some of the scenes are just blazing, I guess. I want to go back to that word I already said. And it, it can become quite intense. And it is a read that you have to kind of, I don't know, give yourself over to in a way. Like you said before, it's kind of dreamlike in some, in some ways. And I, mm -hmm. I'm saying all this. I'm rambling on and on and on. But... I don't want it to seem like an unapproachable or stream of consciousness book because I, I don't think it's that either. But it does have elements of, yeah, I don't know, intensity, lack of clarity. I think the narrative is ultimately clear enough and everything. But it, it, yeah, I just felt like there were times when it shocked me with its power. And then, of course, I don't know. I, it's not like I wanted to pull away after reading certain things, but it was that I almost felt like I had to put it down just to absorb what was happening or something. Yeah. <clears throat> I get it, yeah, it, but it's still pleasurable in the end. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, and that's I, the yeah. fire thing, if nothing else, it felt like I needed to read it because I was enjoying it so deeply that it was like mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, not needing it to live per, like the fire per se, but needing it in that my imagination, my literary interest was extremely, I was extremely enjoying it. It was extremely satisfying, so. 
Okay, let's move now to the scripted part of this where I will not ramble on and on. Amanda and I have both prepared a scripted pitch, usually around 200 words or so. We've written something in advance to try and persuade you, our wonderful listeners, to read this with us. Amanda, take it away with your pitch when you're ready. Sure. Mine is super short, but Mm -hmm. um, it's just because it's so difficult to express how much I want people to read this book. Sure. Um, (laughs) Famine, poverty, government interference, tribal infighting. These are the realities of Louis Erdrich's world and tracks. All of these challenges shape the characters as they either struggle to maintain their native traditions or embrace the, quote, modern world of their colonizers. As harrowing as these challenges are, Erdrich portrays them masterfully with subtlety, wit, and concision. Her use of humor, symbolism, and metaphor help make the atrocities committed in this story more palatable while maintaining the significance of those scenes. This beautifully written account, as told by two equally compelling yet opposite narrators, will reel you in with vivid imagery, well-developed characters, and a touch of magical realism that only serves to enhance the conflict between old and new. Yeah, I could you expand on magical realism? It's a term that came up when we talked about we talked about the book in the book clubs, which as a production note, we've already recorded. This is the final thing we always record. We discuss those elements. Do you think those are off-putting to a maybe reluctant reader or something? How do you think those will hit people? Yeah, so with magical realism, it's... Um, so if you don't like fantasy, magical realism isn't going to bother you. It's not that level of like magic, right? It's not Harry Potter. It is right. uh, where the the certain fantastical things um, could they're just interwoven with the idea of like just the reality of things and it's not necessarily described it's not the meat of the story or anything like that you don't have to have a a big backstory explaining like you know with sci-fi sometimes like what the 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 buildup to all these technologies yeah. and all this stuff is exposition. You don't need that. Exactly. Yeah. The exposition, but magical realism is just, it's something that's so interwoven with the reality of the place that it makes it seem mundane almost in a lot of ways. And it's something that is fantastical, but fantastical in that it's not something that we would encounter in our own world, but that is something normal in the other world in the, the narrative. Totally. And I, I don't, I know my rambling simile didn't do this book any favors, so now I'm regretting doing it, but it is really approachable and readable. I don't, it's not like unpacking some strange T.S. Eliot poem or something. It's really, right. it, it has elements that feel hazy and dreamlike, but the story justifies it well. And then also the writing style can be really cutting too and, and quite clear. So it, yeah. I think it deals in those things just enough to, I think, create some really interesting ambiguities and things in the conflicts. So yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think it's challenging to understand in really any way. So I think that's well put. And it also like creates um, like the ability for the reader to have their own inter- interpretations as they read as well. Yeah, for sure. Certainly. Let me, I'll jump in with mine cause mine actually comments on this too. So I'll jump in with my pitch now. 
Louise Erdrich, about whom I knew and actually know basically nothing, which was a delightful surprise. This is an all-time find by us on the pod. Mm-hmm. Must have an interest in fables, fairy tales, and myths. It's the only way I could partially explain the beguiling and enveloping novel tracks that we're talking about here. It is a story as content describing lake monsters that eat locals as it is with government agents, some could argue real monsters, who are hell-bent on acquiring Native American land. It is a novel about the loss of Native American land, yes, and the progress of American history, sure, but done in such a small scope and scale, which I found intriguing. At some point in the story, a Native American elder, one of the main characters, point-of-view characters, not a push, is criticizing the madness of bureaucratic paperwork and language. I think there's a touch of Erdrich in that, too, insofar as I think she loves to create poetic moments and images and scenes that are less concerned with cause and effect and more concerned with evoking a mood. So I could see some of the author's style in that character's criticisms. It isn't disorganized as a book, really not at all, but it isn't stridently dedicated to clarity either at all times and at all costs. So be aware of that stylistic kind of predilection i guess or preference i hope too that i haven't done this wondrous and dreamlike book a disservice with a setup like that and i with my simile too i'll add in as an afterward after that i i've railed against or after all rather i've railed against the boring nature of myths and fables more than perhaps anyone on any podcast ever because when we did the penguin ones i hated most of the myths and fables (laughs) that we read it became my non-claim to fame my claim to fame for no one but myself but i think this novel is worth recommending not despite these mythic qualities actually but because of them i feel confident saying that this is an exception to my own rule, I guess, because it's poetic language, which is so rich and always indulgent in the best way, makes it so. So yes, it is at times unclear and even fantastical, but it is a book so committed to absorbing you and plumbing your feelings that I don't think you'll find it bothersome at all. And if I didn't, then I don't think you will either, listener mm-hmm. slash reader. And yeah, that's my pitch. Definitely like fable in the loosest term, but yeah, the, the magical realism, the the slight references to to monsters and creatures and nature. Yeah, certainly, and it does mm-hmm. allow one of those characters in particular, who is not a point of view character, to exist in the periphery of the narrative, kind of come in and out. And she is given a very mythical, fable like quality, but crucially, and you and I in the Penguin series railed against this too. There's no moralizing. There's no sermonizing. There are characters who you know have moments of sermonizing and moralizing, but I don't think you can leave this story feeling like you were preached at. And even if it's got a moral core or conflict that I think is pretty clear cut, the colonization of a people, the taking away of their land, the stripping them of the things that they had and deserved and the traditions they held on to, all that stuff, even that is not presented in a heavy handed sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, is it pedantic way? Not a pedantic Mm. way. I'm not sure what the word I was looking for. Not a pedantic way, I think, is what I was looking for. At any rate, so that's our those are our scripted pitches. Let's move now to quotes for clarification. This is when Amanda and I will read a quote that we've each selected from the book to you to give you a sense of the author's style. I don't know if we've had a description or a setup so far that needs it as much as this one because we've (laughs) we've talked around the writing style an awful lot so far and (laughs) hinted and alluded to a lot of things. So maybe this will be the make or break moment for this episode. Amanda, why don't you start with your quote for clarification? Sure. I'll start with the very first paragraph that you've read in this book, Mm because it was, I read it and immediately was like, 
I'm going to love this book. Yeah, great choice. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We started dying before the snow, and like the snow, we continued to fall. It was surprising there were so many of us left to die. For those who survived the spotted sickness from the south, our long fight west to Natasius, sorry, land, where we signed the treaty, and then a wind from the east bringing exile and a storm of government papers— what descended from the north in 1912 seemed impossible. So we start off with like kind of a, a hook there. Um, a, a great imagery. Also, the imagery here, it's really, uh, it's, it's a motif actually, something that repeats throughout the entire novel. And also the, uh, the storm of government papers. There's that... Um, that little dig, that hint at the the colonization that we had mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. I think there's so many sentences in there to recommend the the style and the potency of it, but I, I think the one that I love the most is the second one. It was surprising there were so many of us left to die. It yeah. shows kind of there's a... For that character, too, especially, he is never defeated, but often defeatist or something. He is, yeah. He's an interesting figure to study as the book goes on that he... He's kind of persistent and stubborn, and you know he has a real life. And his name is Nanapush. It's not like it's hidden or something. I should have just said it's Nanapush is one of the characters. His point of view, and so he becomes really the. I don't know. He's not lighthearted, but he's playful. I, you know, he's such an interesting figure in the book. Yeah, but it's it, there are a lot of brutal lines that take turns like that. That are, yeah, it's it's challenging to read, but also, yeah, there's just so much so much imagery there that keeps it kind of. I don't know. Yeah, mythic, I guess. We keep coming back to that one. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on that quote? It's a great one. Nope. Excellent. Okay. Mine is also from the opening of the book. Rare that we pick from the opening, but it does come in with such a clear tone and point of view that, I mean, why the heck not, really? Um, mine <laughs> yeah. is when Nana Push is with, living with a person he saves from the flu or from the disease, and so they're living together at this point, um, and a lot of the people they know have, have passed from it. So this is his reflection on the dead. Their names grew within us, swelled to the brink of our lips, forced our eyes open in the middle of the night. We were filled with the water of the drowned, cold and black, airless water that lapped against the seal of our tongues or leaked slowly from the corners of our eyes. Within us, like ice shards, their names bobbed and shifted. Then the slivers of ice began to collect and cover us. We became so heavy, weighted down with the lead-gray frost that we could not move. Our hands lay on the table like cloudy blocks. The blood within us grew thick. We needed no food and little warmth. Days passed, weeks, and we didn't leave the cabin for fear we'd crack our cold and fragile bodies. We had gone half Windigo. And then he just continues on. I think, you know, it's a real poetic commitment to the image, to the metaphor. To I, It's not even one metaphor, really, because there's so much about them becoming like icicles and heavy, blood is thick, and then it's, you know, but it's all very cold and wintry, which I know you've commented on in the other episodes. These are motifs she returns to for sure, and that are pretty dominant in the story. The The winter scenes are potent, and the things that happen during them are also so, I'd say. But I think it's, it has a heightened level of emotion, but also there's a stillness because of its, yeah, consistency in the writing, and the imagery is so consistent and and powerful that it it feels kind of like a 
I don't know, it sets the right somber kind of still mood. But I, the one thing I think that's missing from our quotes, because it, the story is often heavy, deals with serious issues and themes, and we've set all that up here in the recommendation. Nana Push, the, especially the person whose point of view we just read from, is does bring some real levity, humanity, and kind of kindness to things. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the scenes we were just reading from, he also goes and saves a person's life and takes her in, and that kind of drives the story forward at that time. So I think that's the only thing maybe our quotes didn't hit or connect on or represent. But, you know, I think we represented the dominant tone and style of it all, too. For sure. And also your quote kind of introduces some of that magical realism that we were talking about earlier, too, with the introduction of the idea of like these the afterlife living alongside Mm -hmm. um, the actual living. Yeah. Yeah. Feeling the presence of the dead and among you or around you, seeing them, feeling them, being with them. And a Mm -hmm. reference to Wendigo, which I believe is another kind of mythical or fable-like reference so yeah no i think we chose quite well and uh, telling enough i think you said it right at the beginning i don't know if you'd even have to go beyond the first chapter really pick some powerful stuff to get people hooked so yeah it it, it comes in extremely with extreme clarity and and power so i think that's the best compliment we could have given and hopefully the quotes cleared some of that up too Let's move now then to the final segment we'll do for our recommendation, our last chance to persuade you. This is the Literary Knapsack, where we're going to give you a piece of reading advice. We're going to introduce something that's important to the text so that if you choose to read it with us in the next two weeks, you'll have some advice on what to look out for or what to think about when you're reading. Amanda, you chose for this week, and I'm just going to hop on when when you're done, so set it up and tell us about the knapsack for this week. Sure. Um, Allegory. Mm-hmm. And we definitely mentioned this in the other episodes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So an allegory is a work of art, such as a story or a painting in which the characters, images, or events act as symbols. The symbolism in an allegory can be interpreted to have a deeper meaning, obviously, because it's a symbol. Mm-hmm. An author may use allegory to illustrate a moral or spiritual truth or political or historical situation. Um, Floor Moses, who is Floor's uh, cousin, Nanapush, and Pauline can all be considered allegorical figures in the story and um, symbolic of like Native American traditions versus the colonizing influence. You could also read it in a lot of different ways. That was just the one in particular that I kind of read it right, through right. the lens. Yeah. And to be clear, it is also literally about those things. Like if we had to do a plot summary Wikipedia style, it would primarily be about the loss of land and how this how this particular tribe attempts to grapple with this and fight it either head on or not at all or avoid it. And there's we get into all those conflicts in the in the book clubs, of course, we we won't spoil anything here. Not our intention at all. But just to be clear, it's also literally about that. But Amanda and I do discuss a lot and think. I do, I think, in the end, come down on thinking that some of the major characters here are meant to be in some ways symbolic of broader experiences or at least present, you know, in their own way, a representation of the effect that European colonization of America had just in general on those peoples who were already here. So I think, yeah, I'd be I don't think I'm comfortable saying it's an allegory per se, but I think it's the perfect literary device because as the characters progress and as they experience things, as they change and kind of the things they think about and are concerned with, 
it, I think you need to think about the story in those broader senses too. And, it, and I think it also brings some of the journeys into pretty clear perspective when you read it as, oh, this person is th- experiencing this kind of colonizing effect on them while this one is interpreting it or living with it in a very different way. And so I think, mm-hmm. yeah, it can help with the reading so much though. I don't, I don't know if I would strictly call this an allegory because so much of it is literal too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, not a spoiler. This I'm comfortable saying is a spoiler because it's not a plot thing. And it also, there's so much to it that I can't even spoil what happens. But Pauline, one of the point of view characters at some point, attempts to convert to Christianity. And that is a massive kind of turn in the narrative. And that's just a literal effect. I mean, that's not, you don't have to read that symbolically. I think Mm -hmm. you can because you should read it because it's a total mess and becomes an entanglement of a hundred things, I think. And I found her half of the narrative then really beguiling in a way, but yeah. So that's just an example of the literal nature. Any other thoughts on allegory in this? Um, nope. Any other characters that stood out to you in any way that you want to give a shout out to or mention? Entice them with? I guess um, Lily, the dude at the beginning, I mean, he's he only oh. shows up really twice, but I think that he could possibly be an allegorical figure of like uh, the white male colonization and the the sexualization right of um, of the women that he's conquering mm-hmm yeah we'll leave well there's gonna be trigger warnings before these for sure given what happens in the front half gosh in the back half too probably of this book honestly this will be another one for that too but yes no there there are some intense moments uh and the book start comes in incredibly with incredible intensity i would say too in that Mm -hmm. pauline chapter so and i'll put a heads up in that before these recordings any final words then because we're hitting almost our half an hour mark which is the cutoff for these any final thoughts on tracks by louise erdrich just that it was amazing and i can't wait to read her other books (laughs) yeah i don't think we ever misrepresent in these episodes but i would I would add on to that and just say it might be a top recommendation for me of the things we've encountered on the podcast so far. Maybe it's up there. Yeah, this one really is for me, too. Yeah, this one struck me as well. If today we were not able to persuade you, regretfully, then we do have other books coming up, and I do want to tell you about them briefly. As a reminder, again, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at the Lightly Literary Podcast. And again, other books coming up, so if this one doesn't intrigue you, check back in two weeks for a new book recommendation. The next three books that we've got coming up in order are Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom by Thomas E. Ricks. It's some nonfiction English history. Is that mostly about World War II? Uh, yes, it's, it. it's actually about like World War Two, but with their biographies and how they each like battled or fought for the idea of like independence and, and fought against fascism. Yeah, from their, two political yeah, two opposite ways. spectrums, which is kind of right. the intrigue of that, which, yeah, Churchill being pretty conservative, Orwell being pretty liberal. So, yeah, interesting for sure. Definitely, a, definitely a thesis feeling to me like that feels like somebody had a thesis and chased it down (laughs) because that's an interesting reading of history for sure anyway um the next one after that is born a crime by trevor noah the famous comedian who wrote a seemingly very popular memoir about his life in south africa growing up there and so that's the next one after that and then after that is going to be you can't keep a good woman down by alice walker i believe a short story collection right it is excellent my first time reading alice walker at least in any extended way, she might have been one in a class in college where I got a short story or two, but I definitely have not had a, like a prolonged study of her. So 
that'll Prepared be prepared to be pleased for sure i'm excited <laughs> it's definitely a first for me at least again in any meaningful way you know so in, in those anthologies in college you read so many things once you know for like mm-hmm. 10 pages and then move on so Anyway, I'm excited to see that, too. Those are the books we've got coming up. We hope first, though, that, of course, you join us for Tracks, a truly extraordinary book that we both really love. So hopefully we'll see you in the next two weeks for those episodes. But until then, as always, we'll see you between the pages. (laughs) 